0: Open your Bible with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. Matthew 27. Imagine for a moment that you'd never read one of the Gospel accounts or ever even heard the story of Jesus. Imagine someone had given you a copy of Matthew's letter. This is the first time you had heard this Remarkable story. It began by introducing a name, a man named Jesus Christ, who was both son of God and son of man. His birth was nothing short of miraculous. There was this fantastic promise given by an angel to this virgin girl named Mary that she would conceive a child and her baby would save God's people from their sins. You then witness with the turning of every page these wonderful miracles demonstrating the power and authority of Jesus over wind and waves, wine and bread, sickness and death. You learn the teachings of Jesus in these five sections of instruction that the evangelist includes, each showing us. What the kingdom of God is like and how to live as people in his kingdom. Perhaps you even put together all the pieces and realize that Jesus is God's Christ, his Messiah, sent to establish his kingdom on earth. But now, as we arrive at Matthew 27, everything seems to be pulling at the thread and unraveling. In my Bible, uh, by the end of today, there's only half a page left in this supposed good news story, and everything looks so hopeless. The disciples who followed and loved Jesus have now scattered and abandoned Him, the crowds who... Just days ago, we're crying out, Hosanna, save us in worship to Jesus, are now shouting, Crucify Him. And then our passage last week had this haunting conclusion. They led Jesus away to crucify Him. What in the world is happening? The protagonist isn't supposed to die. The hero is supposed to save the day. The groom is meant to get his bride. Yet in this gospel story, the story of all stories, the king must experience the cross before the crown. And by the end of our text, Jesus Christ will be crucified, dead, and buried in the grave. Today is Palm Sunday, the beginning of what has been called Holy Week throughout church history. Next Sunday, we will celebrate Easter, and we'll be back at Boyer Elementary. We won't be here any longer, so everybody, just have a good look at this view. (laughs) And feel some sort of pity for your needy preacher who's tried to hold your attention against this kind of a backdrop for the last year. Man, I'm ready for an elementary school cafeteria. (laughs) Next week, we celebrate Easter with all of its brightness and color and joy, the joy of the resurrection. But before we rejoice in Jesus being crowned with life, we behold him slain by death. What I hope to do is prepare us to walk through this week with our hearts moved toward the reality, the beauty of the crucified Christ, to remember and retell and relish in the good news of the gospel, especially the death of our Savior. What does the death of Christ mean to you? What does the death of Christ mean to you? The plummet taken by Jesus in Matthew 27, 32 through 66 is as low as we can possibly imagine. Jesus left the praise of heaven to be despised and rejected, was numbered with the transgressors and even plunges to the depths of the grave. Why? Why? Because it is to the grave of our sin that he must bring salvation. Matthew shows us the costly love of Christ toward us as his people, going all the way to death, that he might save us from it. I'd like to organize our text into three sobering truths that you and I are meant to treasure as disciples of Jesus. First, Christ our King was crucified, verses 32 through 44. Second, Christ our Savior died, verses 45 through 56. And third, Christ our Lord was buried, verses 57 through 66. I'm going to invite all of you who are able to to stand your feet once more for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from that cross. And so also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, the day after preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how an imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He is risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting the guard. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Would you please be seated? The first sobering truth of our passage is that Christ, our King, was crucified. As Jesus is being paraded through the streets, carrying this rugged cross, a man named Simon of Cyrene is commanded by the guards to carry it for him. You'll remember at this point, Jesus has been whipped with a cat cat of nine tails. He has been beaten with clubs. He's wearing a crown of thorns pressed into his head, his entire body probably covered with dry blood. And outside the city, they arrive at this skull-shaped hill called Golgotha or Calvary, where Jesus was crucified. Crucifixion in Roman culture was the most excruciating way A person could die. As a matter of fact, uh, the root word for excruciating is the word cross. Crucifixion was reserved for the worst of the worst criminals. Cicero said it was so degrading to humanity, even the citizens of Rome should never talk about it. Above the head of the crucified, they would often write out the crime of the person on a white tablet with either red or or black letters, listing out their wrongs. With Jesus, there was no wrong to right. They placed above his head, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. These words were written in three languages so that the whole world would know that The man hanging before them on the tree was the man who claimed to be the king of the Jews. The irony, of course, is that that ascription is completely accurate. The man hanging before them was, in fact, the king of the Jews. There's actually quite a bit of irony in verses 39 through 44... Matthew mentions three groups of people. There were the passers-by, the religious leaders, and then those being crucified with Jesus. Each of these parties adds insult to injury in this symphony of mockery. However, in the midst of each ridicule, with each verbal punch thrown at Christ, there is yet another truth of His identity that is revealed. The passers-by scoffed at Jesus. If you are the Son of God, come down from that cross. No. If you are the Son of God. Where have we heard those words before? Matthew chapter 4. As Jesus is in the wilderness, enduring the temptation of Satan himself, Satan whispers this accusation in his ear. At the very start of his earthly ministry, if you are the Son of God, now as his work on earth comes to a completion, um, the consistency of Satan's accusation, the temptation of Christ is still strong at work. But the eyes of the passers-by were blinded to the reality that the one who was hanging on that cross, was indeed the Son of God. This was His identity. Then, notice the Pharisees slithering around the foot of the cross. I'm sure you couldn't wipe that slimy, smug smile off their disgusting faces. They celebrate Jesus being crucified. They snarl to one another. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down off that cross and we will believe him. But you see, their insult also contains important truths about the identity of Christ. He is the king who has come to save others. But not by saving himself. Leon Morris, a New Testament scholar, says... The Pharisees said they would have believed he was the Son of God had he come down from the cross. We believe he was the Son of God because he stayed upon it. The identity of Jesus is just plastered throughout all of these jeering comments. Even in their hate filled mockery, their lips still drip with the truth. Jesus is the true Son of God, Jesus is the true King of Kings who has come to bring salvation to his people. Let's circle our thoughts on the identity of Christ in these verses, thinking together about who he is, the one who spoke all creation, even trees, into existence, now hangs affixed, nailed to two rugged posts, the one who gave the breath of life, To all mankind who literally put the breath of life in these people's lungs is now the the aim of their insult. The one who has come to die for his people, the object of utter ridicule. And let's not be fooled for a moment. This is not weakness. This is meekness. Meekness. This is the power of Christ restrained. In an instant, he could have wiped these guys out. With a word, with a thought, demolished all of them. But he's not come for that. He's come to carry the cross of our sin and shame. And do you know why Jesus was able to demonstrate such meekness? He knew who he was before the Father. And what he had come to do. He knew his identity. And oh, that we might grow in our identity in Christ. That we would know who we are before the Father. If you're in Christ, you've been adopted. Forgiven. Called his own. Welcomed. Chosen, purchased, beloved—that's who we are now. Uh, Jerry Bridges has a quote where uh, he takes this familiar quote to us from Robert Murray McShane and just helps us think about it in the in the way of our own identity. He writes, "For every look you take at yourself in your daily experience, take two looks at." Who you are in Christ. For every look you take at yourself, then take two looks at who you are in Christ. How the Father sees you because you are hidden in Christ. Why is Matthew writing this? So we would know who Jesus is. And by extension, so that we would know who we are as a people hidden in the Lord. The cross has made a way for this, this fount of love divine which flows from our Savior's bleeding side where sinners trade their filthy rags for righteousness applied, mercy cleansing every stain now rushing o'er us like a flood. There the wretch and vilest one stand adopted through his blood. Some of you look in the mirror of your life and you still see the wretch that you were before Christ. Well, that's not how he sees you anymore. He sees you clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This is our identity. The second sobering truth we find in our text is that Christ our Savior died. Verses 45 through 56. At high noon... The sky is flooded, not with the light of the midday sun, but filled with darkness. The kind of darkness that that hovered over all of Egypt in in Exodus chapter 10. The kind foretold by the prophet in Amos chapter 8. It's under this darkness... That the Father executes His perfect justice for the sins of the world as they are one by one placed on the head of His Son. And out of the darkness, the voice of Jesus rings out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the same cry that His great-grandfather David penned in Psalm 22. And we've learned this in the Psalms. What's happening here? What Jesus is, is voicing in the same breath both his excruciating pain and also his unwavering hope in who his father is. My God, he cries out. The forsakenness that Jesus experienced in his death is him bearing the full penalty of the sins of his people as he hung there, not just before the crowd, but before his father, whom it pleased to crush his son. For the sake of the salvation of his people, laying our sins there upon the Lamb of God. This is what Paul has in mind in 2 Corinthians 5.21, where he says, For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. To step back and just fill in some of those pronouns. For our sake. That's us who are in Christ. All of us who are in Christ, you, Christian, for you, God made Christ to become sin, who knew no sin. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus died as our perfect substitute. The one who is fully God and fully man died in our Place, in your place. The wages of sin is death, and in his death, Jesus makes the payment in full for the people of God. As earth is stained with royal blood and quakes with love and fury, he breathes his last and bows his head, the king in all his beauty. What is foolishness to this world? is the prize of the Christian. The cross of Jesus Christ. At the same moment that Jesus yields up his spirit, two remarkable things happen. The veil of the temple is split in two, and there's this massive earthquake. Now, these details are unique to Matthew, and I believe he includes them to help us understand two great realities that occur because of the death of Christ. First... We have access to the presence of God. Come on, that's good news. What does that mean? Well, that's what symbolized when the veil of that temple is torn. You see, what was in that place of the Holy of the Holies is the very presence of the holy God. And there's no way that sinful people could trust a holy God. But one day a year, the high priest would march in there with courage and trust and make atonement, sacrifice for the sins of the people. And by God's grace, he would walk out alive. Notice how this veil is torn. Matthew includes this important detail. From top to bottom, who tore the veil? God himself. Why? So that we would have access to the presence of God Continually, From now on, God is saying, there will be no veil that separates us. Come on in. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 and 20 says it like this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. So now, what, what do we have What do we do to have access to God? What do we do with that truth? Well, the writer of Hebrews continues to tell us there in verse 20. He says it like this. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of our faith, having been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Draw near to him and he will draw near to you. Approach. His throne with boldness through the completed work of Christ, through the blood of Jesus that was shed for you. Repent of trying to come to God by dressing yourself up, making yourself clean, as there's nothing needed for our salvation but what Christ alone has done. We do not add to it not one work. It is by grace alone through faith alone, in the completed work of Christ alone. And so we go to the presence of God through Christ. Second, we anticipate a resurrection to come. Matthew tells us that during this earthquake at Jesus' crucifixion, the the tombs of some saints opened up. And then Jesus, when he's raised three days later, they then get up and start walking around. They go into Jerusalem and start talking about all that's happened. Does anybody remember the Pharisees asking for a sign? (laughs) I think back here to just the Mount of Transfiguration. When we saw Moses and Elijah present with Jesus on this mount, his glory revealed Well, here is resurrection. Jesus is still revealing who he is. This foretaste of the resurrection that is to come. This is a sign of the resurrection for the people of God. The death of Jesus would be the eventual death of death. And so what do we do with this great reality that Matthew wants us to see? Well, we look with assurance to the death of death. Because of the death of Christ, we have complete access to the presence of God And we anticipate the resurrection to come. Let's not miss the reaction of this guard in verse 54. This guy had likely witnessed how Christ had endured this trial, the beatings, the crucifixion, his death. He was there when the sky rumbled and the earth shook. And the only words in Holy Scripture Of him recorded are this one exclamation, truly this was the Son of God. Matthew shows us this foreshadowing of countless others who would come to the same conclusion. If you've come to that same conclusion, it's because God's grace has opened your eyes to see the glory of Jesus. And he put this confession in your mouth. Truly this is the Son of God but not all eyes are opened. Perhaps, as we've read God's word and looked at the crucifixion of Jesus, for the first time, your eyes have been opened this morning, believing not merely that Christ died for others, but Christ died for you. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. I invite you this morning repent of your sin. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, and He will save you. The final sobering truth of our passage is that Christ our Lord was buried, verses 57 through 66. These verses present a stark contrast between a disciple of Jesus boldly serving him and these religious leaders writhing in fear, hoping that Jesus and every mention of him will just simply go away. The man we're introduced to in verse 57 is a wealthy man from, uh, named Joseph. He's from a small village called Arimathea. And while all of that is fine and well... What Matthew wants us to see is this wonderful description he calls him by. Do you see that? What's it called him? A disciple of Jesus. Oh, man. It's like you're one shot to get in the Bible, and that's what you're called. What a wonderful thing. When we step back, we see... Remember, we've talked about this through the whole Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is a disciple of Jesus, wanting to disciple us in the kingdom of Jesus. And here he is, final words of his letter, introducing us to another fellow pilgrim, another fellow disciple, our brother in Christ named Joseph. And Joseph models everything we would expect of a disciple. With boldness, he goes to Herod and asks that Jesus be buried in his own tomb. Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin. And whether before this day or on this day, he becomes a disciple of Jesus. Um, Like Mary, he is generous toward the Savior with his possessions. He gives his own grave to hold his Savior. Joseph gave his own grave to Jesus. And and Jesus was buried in that grave in order to save even Joseph. Joseph. Meanwhile, the religious leaders go to Pilate and remind him that, that, hey, remember when Jesus was alive? He said he was going to come back three days later. And so what if we put extra guards at the tomb, seal it up real nice and tidy, make sure nothing happens? We've got to remember this. The Pharisees clearly heard what Jesus was saying. My body will die, and three days later, I will be raised to life again. And where are his disciples in all of this? Scattered and afraid. But the Pharisees heard him clearly. And they are filled with fear. Our story ends with them trying to control the narrative. But the story could not be stopped. It may seem like uh, an insignificant detail but I assure you, the burial of Jesus is central to the message of the gospel. The burial of Jesus. I love how my Scottish friends say the word burial. The burial. <laughs> the burial of Jesus, central to the message of the gospel. As Paul writes to the church at Corinth, he gives us one of the places that the word gospel is used. Good news of Jesus, and then it's unpacked. These little shorthand descriptions of what the content of the gospel is. I want us to pay attention to the importance of each thing he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's in verse 1 that he uses the word gospel. And then in verse 3, he starts to unpack it. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance, we're going to look at that in a few weeks, what I also received, and here it is, one, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Second, he was buried. And this gives away the plot for next week, but he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And so liberal scholars would love to convince you of this made-up thing that is a monstrous thing called the swoon theory, that Jesus didn't really die. He just passed out for a few days and then came back to life. Really? So why were the Pharisees so concerned about controlling this narrative? Why are the Pharisees so concerned about this extra guard? Remember Gabe told us that means like 600 people are surrounding this tomb. Why, why was this, the stone then sealed to the wall? Well, there is no such thing as a swoon theory. They're going to have to try harder. Jesus was killed. Jesus was buried. And Jesus rose from the grave. There is no symbol more central to our faith than the cross. We are a God-centered church, and so we are a Christ-centered church. We are a Christ-centered church, so we are a cross-centered church. There is nothing more precious to us than the cross of Christ, where the Prince of life, our ransom, shed for us His precious blood. This week, I was reading J.I. Packer's introduction to John Owen's book, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. It's an old introduction to an even older book, and as I was reading through it, I I was underlining almost every sentence. I think it's maybe one of the most important chapters written in, in modern Christianity. I want to share with you these words from Dr. Packer on why the cross is so important to us as Christians. He says, we we take seriously the biblical assertions that God saves, and that He saves those to whom He has chosen to save, and that He saves them by grace without works, so that no man may boast, and that Christ is given to them as a perfect Savior, and that their whole salvation flows to them from the cross. And that the work of redeeming them was finished on the cross. Brothers and sisters, Christ has been given to us as a perfect Savior. The work of redemption was finished on the cross. Our whole salvation flows from the cross. Your sins have been paid for in full. Matthew doesn't include these words, but uh, his dear friend John does. The final words from Christ were, "It is finished." What does that mean? The original language, the word is "tetelestai." It's a legal word, and it means three words rolled into one: paid in full. Paid in full. And if you're in Christ, your sins are paid in full. So look again to the cross, Christian, and be reminded that all that's needed for your salvation has been done by your precious Savior, whose blood was shed for you. Christ has accomplished everything that you needed to stand before a holy God, accepted and welcomed. What in the world is happening In this gospel story. Now just a half a page left. The protagonist isn't supposed to die. But in this good news story. The story of all stories. The king must experience the cross before the crown. Today we behold our savior slain by death. Next Sunday. We behold the Lord of life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for speaking to us through your word. Thank you for Christ who has given to us for our salvation. What costly gift you have given to us in saving us from our sins, in giving us your Son saving us with perfect grace without works. Through the cross, providing a whole salvation. Let our hearts behold you. Let our hearts worship you. And let us look for the hope of the resurrection as we gather again next week. I pray in Christ's name, amen.